All right, tonight we are going to talk about the history of Israel. Uh, and we're going to do so, we're going to cover, um, tonight we're not going to cover a ton of time, we're only going to cover a couple hundred years, but over the course of the series, two, three, um, probably three weeks, uh, maybe a fourth week, we'll cover more than a thousand years of Israelite history. So um, so buckle up, we got a ways to go. Um, tonight, I, I really want to start um, because before the end of Genesis, the dates just, we really don't have a clue on the exact dates. We can get to roundabout general times, but we don't know specifically. So what I thought we would do kind of at the beginning is, is just to kind of set the scene in what is called the Middle Bronze Age. So there are a couple of ancient periods, um, before the birth of Christ. There's a couple of main ones. There's the Stone Age. And we know the Stone Age, right? That's where, that's where guy, that's where people are starting to use stones in tools and, and, and as mechanisms to do their work. That's kind of why it's called the Stone Age. And so you get periods, uh, that end with the word lithic. So there's the Neolithic, which is kind of the new Stone Age. There's the Chalcolithic, which, which it starts to involve a little bit of copper along with the stone, a little bit of metal as well as stone. There's a couple of other ages in there. There's the Paleolithic. That's the old Stone Age. Um, by the time you get to the Bronze Age, uh, specifically the Middle Bronze Age, um, some interesting things have happened. So right around the end of the old Bronze Age, the early Bronze Age, there is a collapse of civilizations generally throughout the ancient Near East. And so around 2100 or so, we start to see civilizations coming back. Uh, uh, the urban civilizations. Up until that point, cities were just very loose associations of people that happened to be living in the same area and they kind of needed each other for basic trade and things like that. But as cultures became more agriculturally adept, uh, they, they needed, they were able to produce more than what their families could, could eat. There, there was more crops than they could really handle. And there were absence of things here that they had a lot of over there. And so you started to see people building cities and going to sell their surpluses in these cities. And so you have this beginning of a new type of urban civilization, one that hadn't existed before. And this is around maybe 2000 BC that this is going on. So you've got Ur, the dynasties of Ur have, have really started to take root. You have, um, the Amorites are starting to take dominion over the area of Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates River. Uh, you have, in Egypt, you have just the beginning of the Middle Kingdom. So the 11th and 12th dynasties starting to come to power. In, Philist in Palestine, you have um, really the end of two decades of decline of civilization that are all starting to, to build back the cities and the urban centers. This is probably when Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are migrating through the land of Israel, okay? So now that we've kind of got a basis to start with, what happens over the next couple of hundred years is you see the rise of Mesopotamia. In, um, in Babylon, there's this king that you may have heard of named Hammurabi. 
Hammurabi is one of the most famous kings of Babylonian history because he writes a code, a law code. The code of Hammurabi would become the basis of most every form of law in the modern world. Whether you're Western or Eastern, whether your culture is, um, there's a few cultures that aren't as influenced but are still influenced by it. But pretty much every modern law that's in existence uh, owes at least a part to this foundation laid by Hammurabi. He was around the early uh, 1700, 1792 to about 1750. In Egypt, at the same period of time, um, they're going through a downtime. So Mesopotamia is on the rise. Babylon is really kicking into power. Egypt is on the decline. They call this the intermediate period. And it's during these times that Asiatics, people from the Near East, from Mesopotamia, the Hittites from up in Turkey, Asia Minor, they begin to infiltrate Egypt and eventually come to rule. In the 1700s, we have the Hyksos kings of Egypt. If our chronology is correct on this, this is the time that Joseph goes to Egypt, works for Potiphar, and eventually rises to be second in, in the command of all of Egypt. He takes on the position of vizier. He is the chief administrator, and uh, he is exactly what you would expect a good administrator to be. In fact, some of the tale of Sinehe, that's uh, an ancient Egypt, Egyptian document, talk about the vizier in terms that sound just like Joseph. He's the keeper of the king's uh, uh, granaries. He's the one who dispenses food out to the people. He's the one who, um, in this time, there would have been plagues and, and there would have been droughts. There was a period of time around this time that the Nile River didn't inundate the way that it normally did. The Nile would overflow its banks, water the land on either side. And so if you look at a picture of Egypt, even today, uh, you see desert, 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 and then close to the Nile River, it suddenly turns green. And there's this green stretch on either side of the Nile River. That's because of the way the Nile would overflow its banks every year. And so there was a period of time for several years where the Nile didn't overflow its banks nearly as much as they needed it to. And so there was famine in the land. Sounds a lot like Genesis, huh? I'm amazed the more that archaeologists study and find, the more that we see that the biblical accounts aren't only reasonable, but are confirmed in history. Fast forward to the 1500s, and there is the rise of the 18th dynasty in Egypt. Now, at this point, there had been, uh, uh, there had been a couple of areas of concern for Egypt. Mitanni was up around Carchemish uh, along the Tigris River, or the Euphrates River, excuse me, and the very northern part of Mesopotamia. Just beyond that, um, well, here, just beyond that in Asia Minor is the Hittite Empire. And the Hittites are starting to affect Egypt, but there is a rise of a king in Egypt named Ahmos. Ahmos is... He's a warrior king. And so he is basically, the, the Egyptians had overtaken the Hyksos that had ruled over Egypt during this time. And so now Ahmos comes in and he conquers throughout the land of Palestine all the way up to the Euphrates River 
Uh, some of his, pre his successors would end up having control all the way to the Euphrates River from Egypt. It was a massive empire, probably the strongest that Egypt was in the ancient world. 1570 is when Atmos rises to power. His sons uh, extend control even further, further south into Nubia, which would be southern, uh, the kind of the southern Egypt, uh, northern Sudan, and uh, those kinds of areas today. You would have um, Tutmos the first and Tutmos the second, um, and then we get to Tutmos the third. This is where the history starts to really intersect with Israel. By this time, the Bible says there was a king who knew not Joseph. If you believe there's two different possible dates on the Exodus, and if you believe the early date, that king is Tutmos III. Tutmos has a extensive military resume. He has made more than 16 different excursions into Palestine to control uh, that region, the region that we would eventually know as the Promised Land. It's during this time... I think I, I lean toward that the Exodus occurred. There's two possibilities I said. The first possibility for the Exodus, and these are, these are kind of the timelines under both possibilities. Uh, in the, on the middle column, you have the early date. That would put the Exodus at 1446 BC. So if this is the time of the Exodus, Tutmos III is the Pharaoh before the Exodus. Uh, his successor, um, would end up being the pharaoh of the Exodus. That would be Amenhotep II. But according to the early date, the Exodus would be in about 1446. After that, the wilderness, they would wander in the wilderness until close to 1400 BC, at which time the conquest would begin. It took about 15 years or so for the conquest as described in the book of Joshua. And then the period of judges would really go on until the kingdom would unite at about 1050. Okay, that's the early date. There are um, some possibilities of a later date. We'll talk about just a second some of the evidence for both, but the late date would have the Exodus a couple of centuries later, in about 1270. Okay, if that's the case, the wilderness wanderings would have happened until close to about 1220, at which point the conquest begins, and somewhere around 1205-ish, somewhere in there, is when the period of Judges really starts, okay? And 1050 is a pretty well-established date for Saul. You can get within a couple of decades, uh, probably sometime between 1050 and about 1030 uh, is when Saul takes the throne, okay? Let's talk about these two possibilities. There's two, two major theories on the Exodus. The early date in 1446, Tutmos would have been the Pharaoh when Moses left Egypt. That makes Amenhotep uh, the second and this says the Tutmos II and Amenhotep III, that's a typo. Amenhotep II would have been Pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, there's a couple of pieces of evidence in the Bible. So let's take our Bibles and go to 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings 6 is um, probably the best evidence in the scriptures for this. In 1 Kings 6, it's right before 2 Kings, those of you looking, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm here all week. Um, <laughs> First Kings chapter six, verse one says this. In the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, 
he began to build the house of the Lord. So we have the temple dating 480 years after the Exodus. He starts the temple. Now we know he started the temple in about 966 BC, give or take a couple of years, okay? In all of this, these years are approximate, okay? So don't shoot me if I'm a year or two off that, you know. But 966 is when this begins. Now, if you add 480 to 966, you get 1446. So that would be the date of the Exodus, right? Um, there's other biblical evidence as well. In Judges chapter 11, verse 26, Jephthah is talking uh, and he says, let me get there. Ooh, okay, apparently if I type one thing, it goes to Jude. If I type something else, it goes to Judges. So I just went to Jude. Um, Judges chapter 11, verse 26 says this. While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, in Eroer and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years. Why did you not deliver them within that time? In other words, what he's saying is it's been 300 years since Israel was living in this area. And where is that area? Well, that's in Egypt. Or that's just on the other, excuse me, that's just on the other side of the promised land, out in the wilderness. So about 300 years from the conquest to now. Jephthah lived uh, close to 1100. Sometime he was judging Israel around the 1080s, give or take. And so you add 300 years to that, that gets you at 1380, which is close enough to 1446 that that's reasonable, right? Again, these are approximate dates. We don't have this for sure. Unfortunately, the biblical authors didn't bother to give us a year and a day on these things. This would all point to an early exodus. There's archeological evidence as well. Um, there's a lot of mass migration uh, right around the 1300s which early 1300s, which would have been a perfect time for Israel to cause a massive migration and destruction issues, right? By conquering the land. There's some other evidence as well that we see. Um, it's during this time that the Tel, Ar the Tel El Armana letters are written. They make a reference to these group of people called the Habiru. If the Habiru are the Hebrews, and there's some evidence they may be, though we can't say for sure, then that puts them in the promised land in the 14th century, which is exactly when they would be in there conquering and settling the land, okay? There's some problems with this though. One of the major problems is um, there's a lot of evidence that points in the other direction toward a late date for the Exodus. Late date, this would have been under... Um, Seti I would have been the Pharaoh when Moses left Egypt. And when he died, Ramesses II took the throne and that would be the Pharaoh of the Exodus. The biggest evidence for this actually comes from the book of Exodus itself. Exodus 1.11 describes the Israelites building the store cities of Pithom and Ramesses. Those cities, we know. Um, we know exactly what city they are. Um, Quantir, Quantir is the is the the um, modern name for that area. And it, we know from archeological finds that those were built in the late 13, early 1200s. So if that's the case, well, the Israelites couldn't have been building it if they had already left. So that points to a late date. 
We also look at Exodus 12, verses 40 and 41. Look at that with me. I know we're turning a lot. I, I want you to see... I want you to see how all this plays together because sometimes we have a question. Why is all this in the Bible? But all this actually helps us to put all this together. Exodus 12, 40 and 41 say, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now, that sounds like a pretty good way to date, doesn't it? They come into Egypt, 430 years later, they leave Egypt. Well, the problem is with an early date, they would have only been in Egypt for about half that time. Now, based on what we think of Joseph and where, where the most likely time he comes into Egypt, they'd only been in there a couple hundred years. They wouldn't have been long enough to be 430 years. So now we have evidence for a late day. And then not only that, the archeological evidence seems to point a lot more especially um, this right here, the Menepta Stel. The Menepta Stel has um, writings from the Pharaoh Menepta. Menepta, um, Menepta writes this. He writes, carried off his Ashkelon, seized upon his Gezer. Yanoam is made that is that which does not exist. Israel is laid waste. His seed is not Huru is become a widow of Egypt. Now, obviously, Merneptah did not destroy the Israelites. This is him boasting because this is what kings do in that day is they boast their accomplishments and they, they uh, overstate their case. Let's put it that way. We'll put it nice. We won't say they just that flat out lie. Um, they overstate their case. This still seems to speak of Israel as a people. And what's unique about that is that everyone else that it talks about, it talks about in the terms that would describe a physical location. But Israel isn't described like a location. They're described like a group of people, as if they hadn't settled yet. That would seem to point to a late date. Some folks say you're making too much of details. If you hold to the early theory, you would say that doesn't, that really isn't conclusive, but that's, that's part of the evidence that we have to weigh in. This, by the way, is the earliest time that Israel is mentioned in documents outside of Israel. So outside of the Bible and outside of Hebrew records, this is the earliest mention we have of the people of Israel in the ancient world. It's from this still. All right? Now, all that to say, we don't really know when the Exodus happened. I happen to lean toward the early date. I think some of the problems of the late date are just more substantial to me, but I'm not a scholar. I just pretend one. I just play like one on TV. I, I'm not a full scholar, okay? I can be wrong on this. It could be a late date. I don't know. Um, you say, why don't you just cut it in the middle? Well, there was in a, the, the description of the time in between those two dates doesn't fit. Egypt would not have been strong enough and there wasn't a pharaoh that really fit the bill of the Egyptian pharaoh in this time. So the biblical evidence just kind of, it's one or the other. But anyway, I'm going to go with the early date dates from now on. But if it's a late date, things squish a little bit, okay? All right? We good with that? I don't care if you're not. I, I, I'm preaching, so I get to say what I want. <laughs> not really. 
I do not have that attitude. Please don't think I'm serious. In either case, once the Israelites get out of Egypt, they wander through the desert for about 40 years. And then on the backside of that, they enter Canaan and um, they take conquest of the land. As I said, there's some archaeological evidence. Hazor is the biggest, uh, uh, really kind of the biggest city in Canaan of that time. It's huge. It's, it's massive. And Hazor um, shows a clear level of destruction um, that kind of supports the early day. That's one of the reasons for that. But in either case, the Israelites take control of the land and then we enter the period of the judges. The period of the judges, judges served as kind of a king-judge combination. There was no Israel per se, no nation of Israel. There was no kingdom of Israel. There was no uh, uh, unique identity of the Israelites that really coalesced them together until the kingdom under Saul. Okay, So the judges were regional. They weren't, it wasn't one judge over all of Israel. It was one judge in this particular area. This map is kind of hard to see, but I'll be glad to pull it back up later if you want to come up and get a closer look, or you can come right now. That's fine. I don't care. Um, but it shows the names of the judges. Sit down, Mitchell. I'm not talking to you. <laughs> I can show you later, okay? But um, the, the names of each of the judges are in the areas that they are. So as we go along, I'll kind of point out the area just to kind of help us along. First judge is Othniel. Othniel serves from about 1374-ish to about 1334. Again, approximate dates, so, so just keep that in mind. He's actually the nephew of Caleb. Caleb, um, there's a story in Joshua chapter 15 where um, basically there's a city that's difficult to overtake. And so Othniel says, I'll go take it. And so he leads an army and he goes and takes the city. Kiriath Sefer is the name of that city. Uh, you can read that in, in Joshua 15. Judges 3 verses 7 through 11 give us the story of Othniel. It actually says of him at the end of this text that while he was alive, the people of Israel served God. But after he died, they turned away. It basically tells us that while he's alive, people are following God, but when he dies... They turn away from God. And as you'll see throughout the book of Judges, if you read through it, it's this never-ending cycle of Israel's oppressed. They cry to God. God sends a judge to help save them from their oppression. They worship and serve God for a small amount of time. And then either the judge is gone or um, you know the people just get tired of serving God and they start to serve other gods and then they become oppressed again. And they cry out to God, and it's this never-ending cycle, okay? Othniel's the first judge. After him, he is, um, he's actually down at the bottom here, okay? That's the region where Othniel is judging. The second judge is Ehud. Ehud, if you'll remember, he's about close to the middle here. He is the left-handed judge. So the king, uh, Eglon, is king. And Eglon is this huge, this massive fat guy. Okay, he is so he he's incredibly fat. He, he's so fat that when Ed, uh, that when Ehud goes in to talk with him privately and he sends everybody else away, he reaches in and he grabs that dagger from uh, we not right-handed would keep the dagger on the inner thigh on this side. 
he has the he has it on his inner thigh on this side because he's left-handed. They don't know that, you know. So they're checking his right side, and his right side's good. He's got no weapon, but the left side does. So he grabs that dagger and he thrusts it into Eglon's stomach. And Eglon is so fat that his fat wraps around the dagger and it stays inside of him. Boy, that's a good reason to uh, go on a diet, isn't it? Yeah. He dies. And it's not till a couple days, a day or two later that his, his attendants finally go into the chamber. Because when Ehud is leaving, he tells them, oh, he's, he's relieving himself. Give him some privacy. And a while later, the next day, he had, still hasn't come out and they haven't heard anything from him. Someone's finally brave enough to go in and there he lies on the floor dead. That's Ehud. <laughs> Judges 3, verses 12 through 30 tell his story. After there, there is one verse on this guy named Shamgar. Shamgar served sometime between 1260 and 1247. We don't know exactly when he served. There's a lot of variation in there. But um, Shamgar is up toward the north here. And he saves Israel by killing 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And that's all we know about him. So just, just the man for the job, right? Comes in, does this one great feat, and then he's gone. Next comes Deborah. Deborah is the only female. She's also a prophetess, by the way. So, you know, if someone, someone talks about there being female prophets, yes, there are female prophets. Deborah, um, she could have been as early as 1240 to as late as 1169. There's a lot of variation. We're not exactly sure when she was judged. But um, she judged in the hill country of Ephraim, which is right around the middle, so close to where Ehud was. And she defeats Sisera, and uh, Sisera is the commander of Hazor's army, um, one, of the, one of the predominant Syri uh, Syrian cities of the time. So Judges 4 through 5 tell her story. Okay? Gideon is next. We all know Gideon. He's the one that lays out the fleece. He says, God, let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. If, if you're really calling me to do this, and then, and then he says, God, let the fleece be wet and the ground be dry. You know, I got to make really sure. Please, please don't get mad at me, God. He has this fairly big army and God whittles it down to 300 men and they go and they defeat the Midianites. They surround them in a couple different groups and some of them have lights and some of them are making a bunch of noise and they're all yelling and the Midianites go into a frenzy. Uh, they start killing one another. And God basically delivers Israel from the hand of Midian. Gideon serves in toward the north, not quite as north as Shamgar, um, but he's, he's up in that same region as well. Judges 6 through 8. This, by the way, this is an important point. Gideon, it mentions, destroys the altar to Baal in Judges chapter 6 and builds an altar to God in its place. Very rarely do you see that, even among the kings. When we get into the kings, you're going to see that a lot of the kings don't do that. Even some of the good kings don't do that. Um, but Gideon does. Okay? Y'all have a seat. Babies, y'all got to sit. Thank you. Yep, I know. I know it's so hard to stay on your bottom. I know it. Very quickly, Tola serves after Gideon. Uh, or possibly during Gideon, from either from 1150 to about 1127 or 1120 to 1097. We're not sure which. It's kind of two options there. Uh, Judges 10, 1 and 2 talk about Tola. 
Then we have Jair. Jair serves around the same time, uh, somewhere in that period, uh, 1126 to about 1105. He's in Judges 10, 6 through 5. Then we have Jephthah. Jephthah is the one we mentioned earlier that says it's been about 300 years since the Israelites, uh, just before the Israelites started the conquest uh, to his time. He's around 1085 to 1078. This is the one, by this point, the judges are just getting worse and worse. He's the one that he makes this rash vow to God that the next thing I see of mine, the first thing I see when I come home, I will sacrifice to the Lord. He's thinking there's some kind of animal or something, but before he even gets to the house, his daughter runs out to greet him. And after a little while of really struggling with the decision, he fulfills the vow and kills his daughter. This, by the way, is not what God would have wanted. Um, it's a good reminder not to make rash vows. Judges 10, 6 through 12, 7 give his story. Finally, we have Samson. Samson is the last judge of the book of Judges, but he's not the last judge. Sometime between 1090 and 1050, about a 20-year period, he rules. Samson, by the way, is right along the coast here. He's close obviously close to the Philistines because that's where he wants a wife from. He gets a Philistine wife and lo and behold, guess what happens? She betrays him. He mocks her for a little bit and, and doesn't tell her the secret of his strength, but eventually she finds out, he tells her and she wears him down and he gets captured by the Philistines and then um, his hair starts to grow back and he's in the temple of Dagon and he pushes the two pillars aside and the whole temple falls down, killing everybody in there, including himself. Judges 13 through 16 give us the story of Samson. How far we come from a judge who's so good that Israel's following God all the days of his life to, a ju to judges who are making rash vows and who have incredibly bad tempers. Israel needs something better. Enter Samuel. Samuel was the final judge, and we've talked a lot about him on Wednesday nights, so I'm not going to go into great depth here. But just that he was, he ruled Israel from about seven, he judged Israel from about seven, or uh, 1070, excuse me, to about 1040. So the early days of the kingdom, Samuel is still alive. And of course, the book of 1 Samuel tells his story. But by the days of Samuel, they had seen the priest Eli and his sons go wayward. Samuel's getting old and his sons are going wayward. They're not following God either. And the elders come to Samuel and say, we need a king. We want a king so we can be like all the other nations. Samuel first doesn't want to uh, uh, give him a king. He doesn't want to comply with that request because they're rejecting him. But as he prays, God tells him, no, they're rejecting me. Go ahead and give him a king but warn them what's going to happen, but give them a king. So he does. He warns them. He gives them a king, and Saul becomes the first king of Israel. Okay? That's about 1050, and that is where we will leave off for tonight. Does this give you a little bit better picture of kind of the chronology of what's going on up to this point? I know really once we get into the kings of Israel and Judah, it's going to get, it's going to get a little more interesting but do, does this give you a better picture of some of the events as they're going on? Okay.
Y'all, there is about a billion pages I've left out. I'd love to answer any questions that you have, so um, let me know if there's if you got a question about a certain judge or a certain period of time or certain uh, uh, historical things or if you want to know more about the, how daily life happens in this period of time, I, I'd be glad to kind of help you with that and point you to some resources. But, um, but in all this, God's hand is over his people, no matter how much they're screwing up, no matter how much they want another king, no matter what they do to God, how much they, they turn their backs on him. His hand is still on Israel. And as we move forward in the kingdoms, you're going to see God's hand on Israel in a unique way. All right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a chance to look over some history and kind of get our bearings, kind of find where we are and get to know what kinds of things are going on. Father, I pray that this will help our scriptures become a little bit more lively. I pray that in this period of a couple of weeks of studying this, that, that we'll read names and, and cities and descriptions of events and, and we'll be, be able to picture them better. We'll be able to see a little bit clearer just what's going on. Feel like we're there so that as we read your word, you can impact us in the best way. Father, we recognize that all this is history. But God, it's also your story. It's all pointing to you. So Lord, help us to take some of this in and better glorify you as a result. Thank you for being the God of history. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.